This episode is brought to you by the first ever Toyota Corolla Cross. Sometimes everything just clicks. Like when your favorite song comes on at just the right time. When there's two tickets left for the show. When everyone in the crew can agree on what album to listen to. When everything just feels right. That's the feeling of the first ever Toyota Corolla Cross. Available with all-wheel drive, Qi wireless charging, and advanced JBL sound system. It's everything you need. Nothing more, nothing less. Learn more at toyota.com. It's so nice out there. From sunny Mexican markets to sleepy Greek waves. And when you go as an Expedia member, you save more on the things that matter. Expedia. Made to travel. Terms apply. See site for details. Good morning, honey hole hangout. Oh, you, you pulled it down. Yeah, no, I have to throttle it. Oh. No, yeah. I, have you not noticed that we all don't go deaf the first five seconds when we listen now? I, I like to I, I do it off of a cadence, and you just messed up my cadence in my ear. Oh, no. Yeah, I throttle it every time. Last, like, six or seven episodes. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. We are the collaboration of three... <laughs> outdoorsmen who somehow afforded podcast equipment and figured out how to release content on the internet. These are our stories, opinions, and perceptions of outdoor pursuits in the sporting world. We have a great guest today, Dacus Geeslin. Hey, thanks. Did guys. I pronounce your last name you right? You did, yeah, okay. Geeslin. That's right. Yeah, happy to be here, gang. I know y'all have fun and ready to settle in and have fun with you. Well, when you heard, I think when you heard we had bourbon, uh, you didn't even ask what's your show about. What? No, you know. I, yeah, I put it on the calendar. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we got it. Absolutely. So, Dacus is the director of coastal fisheries for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. So, throughout the show today, we're going to be talking to him about what's going on in our coastal fisheries. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Landon. Deputy director. I'm I'm the deputy dog over there. Very, very blessed to uh, represent and uh, support about 200 of our, you know, finest folks that are working to protect our, our coastal and marine resources. Awesome. Um, yeah. So tonight we are drinking. This is from Gabe. Also, Gabe told me to tell you hi. Hello, Gabe. You know him from Real Yeah, I sure do. Hope he's doing well out he there. He is a, uh, he donates a lot of whiskey to us for us and this oh, is from Gabe thank so you, Gabe. uh this is the Elijah Craig small batch Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey 94 proof we drank the regular Elijah, Elijah Craig, Craig but we have not had a small batch no and so this will be like a chase. barrel yeah. yeah this is the chase like the small batch is like the one people go for yeah cheers Gabe cheers cheers guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of it i have not tried it yet on the sweet end. Let me pour a little. It, it is smell, very sweet. It does smell sweet. It is. But you guys know me. I love sweet. Sweet bourbons. That's my yeah, jam. That's, that's easy. That's easy guy. to drink. Thank you. Hey man, you know what? I'll leave with love. I'm good with that. Uh, no, it's, it's like very caramely. Good. It's like very sweet, very yeah. caramely, very easy drinker. Yep. Yep, that's uh I'm a fan. I am too. That's a you don't need to mix that with anything. That's a that's a good one. What do you think, Cliff? Our beer drinker? I like it. 
<laughs> That's Very it. professional. <laughs> I like it. I think uh, it does have sweet notes to it. I was trying to, when you asked me that, I was kind of like processing it a little bit. I wouldn't use it as a mixer with anything, but I think ice stones, not even an ice ball or cubes or anything that's going to melt, but All I right. think an ice stone. So you just want a little chili? I wanted a little bit more chili. Yeah. Yeah. I like mine cold. It's just. I'll keep drinking neat. Yeah. That's still, yeah. I still think on stones it's neat. It's just chilled. <laughs> so guys, I uh, moved back into my house this week. And yeah, after like a month? After six weeks. Six weeks? That included a vacation in the mi- middle that was pretty that convenient happened. to Big Bend. That's true. So I'm back in the house, have new floors. Do you like the new How floors? How did they look? What'd they you look get? fantastic. We got wood-looking tile. That's the move. I think that's the move. I don't think I'll ever have wood floors as an option again after this disastrous event yeah. of our house getting a little bit wet from water, but them having to remove all of the floors. Tile will... Did they tie it back to the, the freeze, or do they know what... It's just a random thing that They happened? don't know. Yeah. They don't Weird. know. Yeah. Landon took big dumps, clogged toilet, <laughs> spilt over. It did happen in, It did happen in the bathroom. <laughs> just, just float well, over well, one day. <laughs> well, welcome back home, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, we, hey, we went on a pretty long poop-free run. You know, on the podcast, so yeah. I guess thanks well, for bringing it back. <laughs> hey, I got a question for y'all. Yep. Today's International po- Podcast Appreciation Day, so uh-huh. I want to know what y'all got me. <laughs> <laughs> Elijah Craig Bourbon. Yeah. yeah. We got you uh, some bourbon uh, that you won't drink. Some bourbon. <laughs> it is, so it's, is that really a thing? Yeah. I sent a... Sent it in the uh, group chat. Yeah, I don't read your messages. So are we supposed <laughs> to just like appreciate each other for being on a podcast? It's International or? Podcast Day, September 30th. Started it? back in 19... Uh, no, sorry, 2019. I was going to say, <laughs> dang. Started in 1908. <laughs> before, <laughs> before podcast. No, I think first year was like 2019. They dedicated September 30th to International Podcast Day. To but Why? To mark the relevancy of podcast and the culture i guess because um, it's a I, way to get you know what i bet out. our listeners are wondering what they can do uh since they're going to be listening to this two weeks after well my international bit. podcast day <laughs> but if there's a podcast that you're currently listening to and you really appreciate the content that they provide to you my you could, is. <laughs> yeah my Venmo, <laughs> you could go on to apple podcasts and write a review and sh- tell your friends and tell yeah. your friends yeah that's yeah. what they always say like and subscribe like and that's subscribe yep yep so i don't care if you like me just like the podcast <laughs> <laughs> You went to Colorado. I did, yeah. My uh, my brother, or technically stepbrother, got married this past weekend. Cool. Yeah, uh, it was good. We didn't do any fishing. Um, it was just jam-packed the whole weekend. However, I did go on a hike with my stepdad. While we were hiking on the way back to the car, I saw a little trio of bull elk, and I had never seen wild bull elk before. Uh, we had seen some cows. I saw a cow one time going to Big Bend, actually, mm-hmm. and then... Uh, just like on the road. It wasn't like in a fence or anything. And then obviously when we were in Yellowstone, we saw a bunch of uh, cow elk as well. But had never seen had never seen a bull. So we saw three of them. Any just, bugles? Uh, no. No bugles? Quiet. Yeah. Not even at the gas station? 
Nacho, oh no, I did see them. The nacho cheese, and then I was a witch for half a day. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> so, well, let's kick this off. Uh, I'm going to read a hot take. And I think this came, I, I read this perfectly as Dacus was, I think I saw this two days ago. And I thought about it about 20 minutes ago as something to read on the podcast to get Dacus's take also. Um, let me get it pulled up here. So this was posted on the Texas Public Land Hunting Facebook page. This was somebody, their own personal opinion, writing this post. And I'm going to read it. Is it just me or does the government? You know what? I think it'd be more fiery if Cliff read it with his Georgia accent. I can't read. You can't. <laughs> Is it just me or does the government claiming every fish and small and animals as theirs and making you pay to harvest them seem like total BS sometimes? Uh, we get taxed from birth to death for everything our paychecks get taxed before we even get them and then you pay tax on everything you buy. That way you can pay the salaries of people to come around to control you uh, control you for the politicians, aka game wardens, police, federal agents, and other thousands. To that just seems to make that seems to me like it's all a bunch of bullshit. I don't think I don't think God intended for the government to make money off of fishing game. Sometimes their rules need to be thrown out the door if it's not hurting anyone and it's not stupid. Then kiss my ass. <laughs> People pay money to harvest deer and harvest deer on their own land. LOL. I'm just tired of being a damn sheep. All right, I got a lot to ta- talk on it too. <laughs> I like that you read that. Our own, our very own conspiracy theorist reading on uh, government I w- conspiracy theories. I would say theories. that, but <laughs> dude, homeboy, <laughs> it, it's I I agree with some of your sentiments. But that you're looking at it in a very bad and negative way in that we ran this country as far as fish and wildlife goes for the first few hundred years and stuff without any regulations or anything like that. And we demolished species. Yeah. We demolished. We brought bass, bass, because it's fallen a... a it seemed like a fisher dude, I guess. Uh, we brought bass to the brink of almost extinction. We brought, if he is a hunter, we brought white-tailed deer almost to the brink of extinction. We're still suffering from what we did to buffalo and beaver. Well, beaver have been brought back. But all these animals, when we instituted the regulations and stuff like that, we started paying for habitat. He's getting bogged down in the fact that you're paying to do this, but he's not realizing what those tax dollars are going to. We pay the tax for our license, and it goes directly into conservation funds for us to utilize this and bring more species to us. Or not more species, but more quality animals more species to an extent more opportunity. more opportunity he's looking at this in a very ass backward way yeah you're preaching to the choir man i, I, I just yeah <laughs> you are preaching to the choir i, I thought it'd be fun I, to I, read i understand right. that like with you guys uh i'm preaching to the choir with the majority of our listeners we're probably preaching to the choir 
But for someone who's like me, take it, the dude, homeboy don't know me from Adam. Our listeners <laughs> probably don't know me from Adam for the most part. But I'm pretty very small governmentally minded in all of this stuff. But the one thing that I can concede on is that paying for your hunting and fishing license is a net benefit for everything that I love to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, gang, you're, you're, you're spot on. I, I agree with a lot of that. And I am a, you know, from a natural resource manager perspective, uh, the last thing we ever want to do is, is go before, you know, the public and our commission and implement more rules and regulations. That's, I'm, I'm anti that, but oftentimes I feel it's, it's necessary. And Cliff, as you mentioned, you know, this is not the, uh, this is not the 1700s. This is not, uh, the time where we had, you know, a few hundred thousand individuals roaming the continent. This is a time where we have 300 million, um, out there, you know, and many of them hunting and fishing oftentimes with, uh, tools and techniques that are, much more advanced than they were using back in bow and arrow, compound bows, spears, rocks. Um, so it, you can be a lot more efficient. You can harvest a lot more animals. Should that be unrestricted? I, I don't believe so. What I see here is maybe someone, um, you know, maybe they, they're not that great of a shot. Maybe they're not able to catch that many fish because I would, I would argue that if – if you're able to get out, you know, on a on a fairly regular basis and go um, bag your 15 dove during dove season or harvest your ducks, harvest a deer, you've got plenty. You've got plenty of opportunity and plenty of meat in the freezer. Yeah. I, I would uh, to uh, to follow up on a couple things you said, but even like the 1700s where the population was dramatically less than what we have now, we still brought species that are prolific now to the brink of extinction before we instituted the rules and regulations that we have now and it's all because of market hunting of what we did back then yeah. so uh, even with yeah. less means and less people it, we, we did still, so much damage that now it's even more important to have these correct sort of regulations and if you're place. thinking about your license as Oh, this is, I got to get a benefit or I got to get my meat to make this worth my while. Then you're not really the sportsman that you want to claim to be. And, and you don't even have to do that. We're out of the days of sustenance. Uh-huh. I mean, we've got plenty of, you know, we're blessed and, and, you know, the country we live in, we've got plenty of food. And I guess I was approaching it from just a, a sportsman perspective, let alone back in the day, there was, as you mentioned, the, the beaver, there was fur and pelt trades and commercial, um, commercial sale of wildlife. And we're not even getting into the, you know, the model of, uh, the North American model of wildlife management mm-hmm. and the public trust doctrine, which, which says that, you know, all the fish and wildlife resources belong to the public. Which that's another, I don't mean to talk of you, but that's another good way to think about it is, we have in this country and North America predominantly because it falls underneath the North American wildlife model of conservation, but we have opened it up to say that every wild animal is owned by the people of this country. We all own it. Whereas if we didn't do that, the other alternative method for us to have done is like in England or something where it's all the king's deer. And you, if you got caught shooting the king's deer, you got hung. Is that what this guy's wanting? 
I don't think so. No, I mean, and, that's, that's, and and another thing to point out here too is he was bashing game wardens. Well, how many times on this podcast have we done an on patrol article where a game warden busts a poacher? And you can't tell me that those guys aren't necessary for enforcing the rules, doing yeah. their job. Because if if you just let everyone do what they wanted to do, there's plenty of poachers now, out the there that pe- are being busted. The, the what, if, people, what if this guy got caught by game wardens? That's what there? that's what I was gonna say. Is the people who don't like game wardens are the people who want to do something shady and skeezy, or they've already been caught. Because realistically, the cost of a hunting license is not that much. Like no, in the, grand in the grand scheme of things, no. Yeah, you know, yeah. and like you can find ways to hunt for food relatively inexpensive. Yes, I would say in Texas for deer. It is a little more expensive because we have so many uh, private ranches and stuff. But there's a ton of other places that you can do it for, you know, the cost of your license. Well, heck, people buy duck stamps just because they like to collect the The duck duck stamps because of the artwork that's released every year. They're paying, what, 30 bucks, 25, 30 bucks for this dude. This dude is looking for a value, a, a monetary or a physical being of value. That he's getting back in exchange for his hunting or license, do you think, not do, for the experience, do you think or he's been caught doing something shady and uh, nefarious. Do you think it's the value aspect, or do you think it's the mindset of, this is mine because they say it belongs to me, so I should be able to do whatever the hell I want with it? I don't or know, this is my he, little hundred acres of property, and I want to be able to shoot the deer or hunt however I want to hunt well, because it's my property, and you can't say anything about well, it. Well, he can do that with pigs. That is true. I mean, yeah. Hey, you really just want to do it the way right, you want to right. do it. Just hunt hogs. Yeah, and I, I mean, we've all been in situations where, you know, the hunting or fishing is good, and you may very well be restricted and have to, you know, put up. Throttle put it up, back put or up, something. Yeah, put up the guns. Put up the, you know, put up the rod because, you know, oh, well, I've got my limit. Yeah, so, well, that's um, how we went duck hunting last year. I shot that. My first bird was that one that was like, you can only have one of, what was it, not the white wing or the... Um, was it an Aztec? It might have been. Or right, Inc, one, uh, the Inca. It was, the Inca. yeah, but it was one like one, you know, was the limit or whatever it was. And I was like, well, I'm done because if I shoot another one... You, you couldn't tell. Right. Yeah, you certainly oh. erred on the side of being careful. Yeah, it's like, I, I think this. I think this dude, I think he he's bitter on something. He's not approaching it from a true sportsman-like conduct situation. Or he's been looking for a value, some sort of physical value in exchange for having to have bought this license, or he's been caught doing something and he's wanting to bitch about I it. I think he would be an ideal feral hog hunter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. man, just go crazy. Just yeah. do it. <laughs> Take them all day long. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good point is that it's not that they're restricting your rights and taxing you to death on this. If you have private land in the state of Texas and you want to hunt hog, you don't need a license. You get to just do it. They don't That's even right. care how you do it. You want to do it by crossbow, do it by crossbow. You want to do it by a... Spear? Spear, you can do it by spear. If you want to do Helicopter. it by... Setting Helicopter. up a... Hot air balloon. It's setting it, up know. some sort of explosive and filling it with tannerite and shooting the tannerite underneath the pig. They don't give a crap. That might be illegal. Tannerite's no, tannerite's 100% <laughs> legal. No, they don't. There's no. There's no restrictions on hogs here. So, dude, go hunt hogs. 
It's fun. Pull them up a ten right now. <laughs> but we got <laughs> to re- we got to recognize that that sentiment and that position is in the. I think fa- it's I in think the it's minority. A far minority. Yeah. And that's and what reading I was through saying, the comments like, about four hundred comments of like, dude, you got this wrong. Yeah, you don't meet many people who are against all the things. That I think yes. like that's something that goes left, right, and center of everything that most sportsmen who hunt and fish disagree with that gentleman for sure. And that's like your comment of you think it's his mindset of this is mine. I should have a right to it anyway. Mm. Even the most small, like governmentally minded people, the most conservative people that we know Mm. do not think that way. Yeah. And so I I think it's, I think it's a a one off, not a, I think it's the exception, not the rule. Gotcha. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Let's get into some articles. Cool. Uh, I have two actually Cliff. Why don't you go first? You ha- you or I'll go first. Uh, I have two. Um, first one is an interesting uh, fish record. White catfish shatters state record and is possibly world record. Gabe sent this article to us, uh, reported by AP News on September sixteenth. You want to do a soundbite? Go for it. <laughs> So like this a, sounds like a neat thing in nature. This, yeah, neat thing in nature. This <laughs> story is a roller coaster, actually. Ooh. Uh, ben Take me on a ride. Tom Kunis caught a 21.3 pound uh, white catfish in Connecticut. The previous record was 12.7 pounds. His friend had a digital scale with him, so they put the fish on the scale, weighed it, and took a fish, p- took a picture mm-hmm. of the fish while hanging from the scale. Um, the IGFA world record is currently 19.3 pounds. The next morning, he gave the fish to his grandfather, and the evidence was eaten. The Wait, f- oh, the whole, like the fish. The was fish, the okay. fish was eaten. Yeah, the evidence of a world record was eaten. Gotcha. The fish may not be eligible for the world record because it cannot be verified. All they have is a fish hanging from a scale. Who knows if the scale was tampered with? It looked like a twenty-pound catfish hey, from the picture. What? Or you could find some, you know, rocks and shove it in the catfish's mouth <laughs> then weigh it. Yeah. So uh, the story gets better because the state of Connecticut had announced it as a new state record. Um, and then IGFA was like, can't be verified. It's not a world record. Well, as of three days ago, the state record was revoked because still images and videos, which have been proven to be uh, ambiguous and inconclusive to definitely identify the species of catfish in this case, they basically said, you don't have the state record either because we can't positively identify that this is a white catfish. Dang. Yeah, because I guess they were getting so many messages and there was some disagreement within the state agency that it was not a that white sucks. catfish. That that's unfortunate for that angler. If it if it was true actually, yeah, you actually know, true, a yeah. true state record. And he know. he didn't even, you know, really obviously he didn't really know. He, you know, gave it to his grandfather the next morning, took a picture, posted it on, you know, social media and then oh, that looks like a white catfish. Oh, that's a state record and you know, for it, the articles made it sound like he didn't know or was trying to be disingenuous. Right. But a wild roller coaster of a story, um, for sure. My question, though, the thing I don't understand is who eats catfish for breakfast? You said the grandpa ate the catfish the next he morning. He gave it to him the next morning, and then um, it was eaten, but could have been eaten any time okay. today. You well, never had catfish and eggs? 
No. That sounds <laughs> absolutely <laughs> disgusting. I feel, I feel like you're approaching it from the wrong angle again. <laughs> I feel like if you if someone gave me a catfish and uh-huh. I was like, hey, you know what? That sounds pretty good. Oh, by the way, it's fresh. All right. I might like fillet it up. If I have biscuits, I'd definitely put catfish on a biscuit and eat it for the break for breakfast. I don't know. I wouldn't say that. I'm not a my... big. I'm not a big catfish fan because it can go one of two ways. Like disgusting. You, or you great. can, yeah. It, it's either disgusting or it's great. And sometimes I don't want to take the risk because sometimes it's his grandpa. Clean... You can't tell me that his grandpa don't know how to cook crack catfish. Yeah, no. Well, it's probably sometimes really good. you can Just taste like the small water. Little catfish nuggets. Yeah, yeah. No, that's probably great. You can taste the water they've been in. Yeah, sure. nothing tells Absolutely. me that grandpa knew exactly what he was doing, and he probably like. Let it sit in buttermilk for a day, pulled it out, rolled it in flour, fried it up in skillet. Meemaw's coming out of the kitchen, too. <laughs> Thanks, she, she made, she made some good. big catfish head biscuits. Mm. What's a catfish head biscuit? Just a big biscuit. It's got like whiskers. It's kind of like, do you put the biscuit in the catfish? No, <laughs> a cat head biscuit is just a big biscuit. Okay. You're not from the southeast. It shows. No. When my grandma made fried bologna sandwiches, and that was about south as it got. Oh, I can introduce you to a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my next article, uh, missing Tucson attorney found dead on fly fishing trip. This is on patrol? On patrol. Ooh. So, last week we talked about, uh, I guess, uh, a hunter was accidentally shot, and more often than not... That's what our stories revolve around is accidental hunter shootings, unfortunately. We already covered that, so we're not going to get into it again. But this one uh, had fly fishing in the title, and we've never covered a story like that, so I thought I'd bring it. This was reported by the Arizona Daily Star today, September 30th. Chris Straub, 64, was on a fly fishing trip with his wife at a resort near Sedona. Um, I think... You know, they went to this resort. His wife was doing resort stuff. He was going out each day and mm-hmm. going fly fishing. Uh, he went fishing Tuesday afternoon. Uh, he was supposed to, he told his wife he'd be back by 6. He didn't make it home by 6. And she reported him missing that evening. Uh, search and rescue found him about 1230 Wednesday afternoon in thick overgrowth. Uh, it appears that he fa- uh, suffered a fatal accident, but more will be known from autopsy. They do not suspect foul play or anything like that. So it sounds like something natural happened while uh-huh. he was out fly fishing. Um, and uh, I, I think from the article I read that he worked for the district attorney's office in his county. So it could be foul play. Ooh. They said, they said, they, the reporting said first, no. folks. <laughs> could be foul play. Uh, uh, I mean, we, we, we talk about the hunting situation, you know, a bow hunter accidentally gets shot, and we're like, how can you shoot? And this just seems like, you know, guy goes out fishing, maybe has a heart attack or something like that, and no one is with him. How often do we or anybody that we know go out fishing by ourselves? Just something to think about. I believe there was a like a Lone Star Law. It might not have been Lone Star Law, but one of like that type show where someone went out into the woods and had a heart attack and didn't respond home. It took them like two days or a day or so. And the wife called like frantically or the other guys were like, he never showed back up to camp. And so got like a bunch of people out there on like a couple day search and finally found the gentleman and he had died of a heart attack trying to get back to camp. That's crazy. 
Well, let's hope he had a good fishing day before, I hope he, did. before yeah. he passed. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of our articles of last week, something I read, uh, forgot what state it was in. It could have been my home state. It sounds like it. <laughs> a dude carjacked a car by bow and arrow. Okay. Like stole a car, like cat a bow. Pulled it up. Get out of the car, ma'am. <laughs> Straight up. He ended up getting shot by the police. Or I don't know if he was shot, but he got arrested for it and app- apprehended. I don't think he made off very far with the car, but yeah. Could a boat go through a window? Uh, depends on how close you are, I'd assume so. That's true. I mean, it is like a tempered glass, but. That's true. But you know, know what I mean? Let's like, try it. You got a Jeep. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't really shatter, though, so I don't. I wouldn't think that they would. Because they they're made to like if hail hits or a rock hits, it it it's held together by like a, I don't the, know what that's the just layers. the front windshield the side though they they go into pebbles right they're like yeah glass it's pebbles. like a little bit more tempered mm. it's a different type of glass than the windshield I don't know we can try it out I got a bow <laughs> you got a far. truck too Cliff no we're not using my truck it said <laughs> car window. <laughs> 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 Um, Speaking of that, though, I read another article today in my research. I'll touch on it quickly. They found a missing bow hunter from 50 years ago. Another hunter found a bow hunter that went missing 50 years ago. Was he just like, you know, a big bushy beard Uh living in a cabin? No, they found his remains. Oh, okay. That's how you should lead it. Yeah. (laughs) Because it would have been cool the other way around, too. (laughs) Um, But they think that he died from a rock slide based on how they found his body and, and everything like that. Dang. Did he say we going down it? <laughs> oh All right, time to move on. This is the Cliff's, Halloween episode. <laughs> Cliff's, um, Cliff's article, or you don't have an article, but do, you're going to talk I'm not about do an article. You're going to talk about uh, duck hunting patterns that are happening right now. Yes, I am. And Without hot spotting, right? Which button do I get to push for this one? So uh, I'm, I'm going to push C4. All of them. C4 works because it's kind of more of like my opinion. Yeah, it's a Cliff's cool conservation corner. Um, So, yeah, duck hunting is what I want to talk about, and so I'm going to. Do y'all want to hear my predictions or what's kind of going on around the country right now? I want to hear everything you have to say. I want to hear what's going around the country. All right, so we're thoroughly into early, like, the first split of uh, duck season in the most northern states, such as Minnesota, those top, States and whatnot. Minnesota's, for example, started September 25th and is running. It's like right in the middle of the first split right now. Uh, everything that I'm reading as far as reports go, there's a couple places that are getting limits of birds, mixed bags, but they are get, hitting some limits. Uh, but a lot of people also saying they're not seeing much action. Okay. Now, you you take that in with a little bit of grain of salt, meaning how good of a hunter are these? How much work have they actually put in and all this? Like, it's their opinion and what they saw in that moment or or how these reports done through DU. Like, I can submit a report right now and be like, yeah, I saw, like, two till. And it's going to show up as, like, a little spot. But if you're looking at it right now on the DU map, the – Minnesota area is highly hot spot. And then along the eastern seaboard, I think around uh, New Jersey and all that area had a pretty good glow to it as well. Let me uh, pull it up so I actually 
Yeah, New Jersey between Washington uh, and New York, a little bit areas in Toronto, but the biggest spot is up around uh, the eastern part of the Dakotas and Minnesota area uh, right now. And of course, like I said, it's uh, now is this a certain specific species of duck, or is this just no, ducks it's in general? Ducks in general. There's a frog. Oh, there's a frog. Uh, du- ducks in general. Uh, Everyone who's saying that they got limits are saying that it has been mixed bags or they're getting a bunch of residential woodies and stuff like that right now. So it's it's still kind of up in the air. With that being said, the north has suffered from a severe drought area. Like North Dakota, the Prairie Pothole area, didn't get as much water and it hurt breeding populations of mallards and all these other ducks which tells me they had to have flown farther north and maybe even a little bit more west so they're higher up in canada so they might not have flown down yet i don't know what the weather and cold fronts and stuff like that have looked like up there but i do know that ducks will fly down with the fronts so if it's not that cold up there yet then those ducks haven't moved down with that being said and taking into Texas and our area specifically, we've had a lot of rain. We're still getting rain. Tanks that I have not seen full since moving here are over their banks. We have water, which is great for us and is a check mark plus in my book for what to expect this year. I also think that it's going to be a cooler summer or a cooler uh winter we're going to have a good cold winter with good fronts coming through because we've had a very mild summer as well so that tells me it's going to get cold those northern areas are going to freeze up these birds are going to come from higher north this time around and come down we have the water we do have feed still once these cold fronts start picking up i think south texas texas in general oklahoma these areas are going to have a good duck season. You heard it here first. Cliff Cowart address. No. Said. Saying everyone will limit said, on ducks. Yeah, well, I didn't limit say, out on ducks. I didn't say every that. You can pull the pitchforks out and come to his home if he is I wrong. didn't say that, but it's my <laughs> prediction. It's my prediction, especially over the past three years, we're going to have a better duck season this year than the past three years. It's my prediction and my feeling. Did it? Take Cliff, it for what it's worth. Did I also hear maybe a later migration? I, I think that it's going to be a later migration. I don't think that. We had good till numbers coming through, but as soon as that cold front came through last weekend, they moved on. They're, I can't. I don't see till right now. I'm sure other people are probably like, I got them all right here in blah, 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 Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see them here, but I, I do know that they move with cold fronts. I'm just looking at it from a scientific and a hopeful mind's eye right now. I'm excited for this duck season. I hope you're, I think I it's, hope you're I think right. it's good. I, think we're, I hope you're right because it'll be my first year of duck hunting. I think that we're in if a – If I have a bad season, I, I think find that, you. I think <laughs> that we're in a good position right now. Okay. Cool. All right. Y'all hear it here first. Cliff's duck hunting predictions. Also, I mean, whenever we go out with you, I'm going to be, like, just listening to your calls. Like, I don't, I'm not 
gonna have a call. Oh, I'm not allowed to call. It depends on who else we're with. If it's us three, yeah, I'm calling. Yeah. So like, if we don't and shoot we're any not birds, allowed to call. Yeah. So not only will it be close from wrong migration. I know what a duck sounds like. But quack. quack. <laughs> I, I'll put it this way: in the blind, in the blind with other friends that I duck hunt with, I'm not allowed to call. Yeah. Because I'm the weakest caller. And do you want to call though? I do. Yeah. See, I don't want to call. Do you want to call, Landon? Yeah, see. He just shrugged. He's like, I a couple of aspiring callers. Yeah. <laughs> he could care less. Yeah, I mean, if that's how the mentality, like, I'm going out to have fun. I don't. I don't think your you're first season you should even focus on calling. No. Yeah, I'm going out to have fun. That's all I would If care someone about. else wants to call, that that doesn't hurt my feelings. Last thing I want to do it is doesn't... be excited about calling and be like, you can't call because this is your first time duck hunting and then ruin the whole trip. <laughs> like, oh, I've done it. I might as well life. not learn. I'm, if I'm going with people that know how to call and they want to call, then. Exactly. Yeah, I, trust me, I'm not, I'm not hiking out there in the swamp by myself. I, I don't get upset that I can't call with these other be- people. Like, I know, like, they're the better caller, and I'm not going to, I don't want to flare them out. If it's just me, then yeah, I'm going to call, and if I'll learn something from it, is my approach. Yeah, but well, you got to actually call to actually learn. The most I want to do with these other guys is simple quacks, and I can quack all day long. Quack. Yeah, is like Zach my, can do. Zach is it like too. Mighty Ducks where everyone sits in the blinds like quack, 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 quack? quack, 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 quack. <laughs> that and Drake whistles, I'm pretty good at. Okay, without a whistle, like I can do it by mouth. That's pretty impressive. Do it. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, it's a little harder with I did that as a kid and I always called it woming because it was like a whistle hum. Well, there, there you go. <laughs> All right, Zach. All right, we're you ready? doing a creature watch? This I'm week? doing a creature watch because this, this is going to come out around Halloween. This is our honey hole Halloween. Y'all remember last year when we, we called the, the uh, donkey lady? I, I think we need to do it again. That, yeah, I don't think every her, year we got to do that. I don't think her her hotlines open up yet. To Phil and Dacus yeah. and the rest of our <laughs> do you listeners. Know about the donkey lady? No, I do oh, not. It's yeah, a San please. Antonio legend. Yeah, it's great. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, there's a hotline that you can call. I heard there's some donkey ladies down in Laredo too. <laughs> But it's different. It's different. <laughs> I believe that's the donkey show. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hotline you can call where you can actually listen to the donkey, donkey lady. lady who haunts some bridge in San Antonio, and we called it last year on the show. And, she said uh, something about sweet tea and fried, fried chicken. chicken. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's great. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I want to come back for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are right, you guys ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Welcome to Honey Hole Halloween. <laughs> so uh, we I'm, did that harmony. <laughs> Let's do it again. All right. <laughs> Say it again, Zach. Welcome to Honey Hole Halloween. Ooh. <laughs> that was great. That was great, guys. Uh, so it is a little bit of a frightening story. Uh, it is called the A Cherry, and it's like spelled A C H E R I. Yes. Do I need to turn off the light? No. Because I can't read my notes. <laughs> and we give you I a flashlight flash and we <laughs> hold it under your chin. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so, as mythology is based in India and also like in Hindu culture, right? Uh, and a cherry is, like and I said, this is, you know, if you have little ones, you might want to earmuff them. Uh, it is the ghost of a child who is killed or left to die. 
right? So it was kind of dark to begin with. Now, knowing that it was like a Hindu culture, when would you guys say this kind of first originated? I couldn't find like a set date, but doing a little research, I kind of have. Honestly, the Indian like Hindi, Hindu culture and stuff, it goes back thousands upon thousands of years. I don't, I think, is it AC or BC? So, uh, can you give us that much? AD. It is AD. Ooh. 600. Okay. You heard it here first. 728. Okay. What do you think? 1300s. Okay. So, Landon, you were pretty close. So, from my best research, it is 500 AD. Whereas, Cliff, you were right. Whereas, like, the Hindi culture has been around from, like, they've, like, 6,000 BC to 2,000 BC, Also, right? a plug, if you've never been, highly suggest. India? Yes. Yeah. Loved it. Really? But around 500 AD is when they really started to, uh, like when my research showed that they started to begin to focus on like deities and some demons and stuff like that. They already, they started to add that into their culture. Um, but some, when they hear India, they accidentally mistaken, like they attribute this story to Native American folklore, but it is not. It is actually, like I said, that, Hin- that Indian culture, like India, Indian. The uh, subcontinent. Yeah. So, uh, so the Acheri typically like looks like a young girl. It is a ghost, right? Or some people think it's a demon. Comes down from the mountains uh, and hills, and uh, it brings its sickness to people, but also to children, right? It mainly goes after children. And the reason why it comes down and looks like a child is because it like plays with the children first, and then will actually like get them sick with like some sort of plague or something. Uh, it's often depicted as, like I said, a young child with dark, unnatural eyes, uh, and they're also known as hill fairies. We have those in Austin. Hill fairies. (laughs) (laughs) They look look different. (laughs) They look a little different. Uh, So, some of the only things you can do to protect yourself is if you have a red necklace or a ribbon tied around your neck, and that is because red has been used to protect against evil for centuries. Now, I remember when I was there, there were kids, and they would come around, and they would put, like, red bracelets and stuff on you, but oh. then you had to pay them. Okay. I never hey, took They're just one. protecting you from that cherry. I never took one. Yeah, <laughs> that was a bad move because you weren't <laughs> oh, safe. They were oh, really trying to help you. Man. You got any sickness? <laughs> We're not talking about that podcast. (laughs) Uh, They can become invisible, and like I said, then they use the children's shape to gain people's trust or to like look like you know not scary. Uh, They have super strength and super speed. Uh, They also feed on misery. Uh, They can literally cast a shadow on person, and then like that person just like gets sicker and weaker and more depressed, and then they just feed off that person. Uh, some are considered omens. If they don't infect you, but they sing near you, uh, your death will come soon. So uh, it's kind of like the banshee. Yes. Kind of like that banshee. regard. Yeah, 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 right. Like they, they sing to lose you out and then. Well, banshee. No, no, that was the, that was the, the vulture witch lady. Yeah. The ban- banshees, it's, if you hear them, you're supposed to die within like. Soon, like yeah. in a matter of days right. or so. Yeah. Uh, so the only way to actually defeat one is to tie a red cloth of a medicine woman. So if you see Dr. Quinn around, 
Uh, you tie that around <laughs> the ghost. I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> you tie that around the ghost neck, and it will put the spirit to rest. Uh, if you're really scared, you can take salt and place it around your home or put it like on your window seals and your doorways. And you can actually keep a little bit of salt in like a little pouch in your pocket. Is and that, that because she has like high cholesterol and can't have salt? I don't know. Yeah. Or she just really, really needs water. The Morton girl must be super protected. (laughs) (laughs) Protect Morton girl at all costs. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the story of the uh, cherry. Cool. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Happy Halloween, everyone. All right, Dacus. So let's let's talk about what, uh, before we get into everything, what does your day-to-day look like as the deputy sure. director of Coastal Fisheries. Yeah, no, I, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Um, you know, a day in the life of me involves office work. And why, why it may sound glamorous that I'm, you know, in a position of, of Coastal Fisheries, I haven't worked fish for a while now. We've got so many more talented and, um, you know, folks along the coast that are doing that. So a day in the life for me is working, working along our teams at headquarters, but also as we've gone through, you know, the COVID pandemic, having lots of teams meetings with folks up and down the coast. We've got our, you know, our hatchery team that are doing doing wonderful things in our hatcheries. We've got our management teams that are out right now doing our gill net surveys, um, you know, kind of triaging and supporting where needed. We had a boat breakdown today, a pretty significant breakdown. We got to implement some, you know, a high, high-powered uh, engine purchase. So I'm Running, running traps with that, with our, our budget coordinator. Uh, working with our, our division director, my boss. Um, kind of forecasting out, thinking about travel plans, meetings we got to attend, meetings we need to host. Um, thinking about, you know, problem solving. Problem solving. That I'll capture kind of my position these days is, is working through issues. And the merry-go-round just keeps turning. Of, of potential issues. So what are what is a issue that you guys are currently working on? Sure. Um, we've got a commission meeting coming up in November. Um, we owe the commission kind of a, a recommendation for spotted sea trout along the coast. How closely do y'all work with other states and like Mexico, considering that we all share like the same coastline technically, it's all part of the Gulf and sure. Clearly you can't control where these fish are going and coming right. in from. No, that's a great question, Cliff. And and certainly some of our more of our uh, oceanic fish, open water fish, uh, we do have they don't they don't know any boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know? Um Certainly, we work hand-in-hand hand with Mexico regarding sea turtles. Uh, we've tried to work. We've make, we're make, continuing to make attempts uh, to work with closely with Mexico to curb some of the illegal fishing activities that are coming out of Mexico. How receptive of, to that are they? You know, I think it's, from their perspective, it's, it's such a big issue, that, and they've got so many other issues that it, it probably registers pretty low on their priority yeah. list. And, you know, some of that is controlled by cartel money. Um, so it's hard for them to wrap around. I would say, you know, by and large, we work much more closely with our, you know, our other contiguous Gulf states. Okay. So FX presents Under the Banner of Heaven. This case I'm working on is a double murder. Inspired by the true crime bestseller by John Krakauer. Oh my God. And starring Academy Award nominee Andrew Garfield. The evidence 
points to things and to beliefs that I have only ever heard whisperings about. FX is under the banner of heaven. All new Thursdays, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by HP. When you're working apart from your team, feeling connected can be a challenge. Presenting HP Presence, a more thoughtful, human collaboration technology. With enhanced audio and video features, you can experience more genuine collaboration and feel more connected. Be in the room, from any room, with HP Presence. Learn more at hp.com forward slash presence. No, great question. I wish that we worked a lot closer with Mexico, and I wish some of the political and, and cultural um, you know, the environment over there was more conducive to collaborations and partnerships. Yeah, but it's, yeah. I can understand from their standpoint, it's hard when there's so many illegal activity, and I don't mean illegal like crossings, but illegal as in the cartels and stuff, the government doesn't have control over it. It's like saying, well, why isn't our government doing more on the gangs and stuff sure, here. Sure. It's yeah. It's a hard it's a yeah. hard thing to tackle. And it's hard to put our 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 put ourselves in their shoes, right? Yeah. And how they prioritize and and budget you know, use their budget to fight different different uh, you know, factions that they have at play over there in that country. So you mentioned the sea trout. What is the big issue with sea trout? Right yeah, now? so you know, back in February, as you all experienced, as I did too, uh, the the freeze, the February freeze issue. Um, as you all know, that 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 freeze, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't just you know inland environments that got hit hard. It was uh, you know the our coastal and marine fisheries. They're very susceptible to freezes. They're not they're not built for cold water. Um, so, and spotted sea trout much more susceptible than say there are other uh, compadres in the bay. Say redfish. Redfish have a have a higher uh, thermal tolerance than do spotted sea trout. So we see through history, and we've even documented back into uh, you know the 1500s of early Spanish explorers documenting you know the bay the bays freezing over and just you know frozen conditions in the bays, and they describe what we believe are spotted sea trout, speckled trout. Um, so we experienced that this last uh, February, and as it you know as our folks got out and um, you know counted literally counted along transects of our shorelines over the course of two weeks uh, at the, you know, all said and done, what we ended up with, guys, is a a freeze event that is the largest fish kill, freeze-related fish kill since the 1980s. We had a big one in 83, and we had two really big ones in 89. And, you know, those rank, those are kind of set the benchmark for the, uh, the, the highest number of fish kills, and I think the one in 83 was like 14, 14 something million. Well, so it, w- it, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. No, that's all right. Go ahead. But what I was going to say so it's it's not like that freeze was unprecedented. It, it happens. And it, it does. Happens, it sounds yeah, like it was in point. the 80s fairly regularly. Yeah, and what we see, Cliff, is, you know, along the coast, we've had one. We had one, a minor one, in 2017, right around New Year's. Uh, but as we experienced here, we experienced that week-long, week-long um, freeze event. And that really gives yeah. the bays, especially those shallow bays, and we think about, you know, if y'all been down wade fishing in the Laguna Madre, by and large, the average depth down there is about three foot. Yeah. So it doesn't take long for that wind and wave action and that cold cold weather to really 
drop that water temperature in a hurry. And over time, those fish, you know, for about a day or so, they can, they, they're all right. But after, you know, a prolonged period of time, they start going belly up. And so once our folks got uh, through counting, we ended up with a, the, and this is a, a minimum estimate, 3.8 million fish. And about, about 9% of those, 9% of those are, are game fish or recreationally important you know, sport fish, everything. Mm-hmm. We even saw red snapper, uh, tarpon, while the numbers were really low, snook. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, the snook distribution along the coast has really expanded uh, because our, our, our coastal systems allow that when it's, when it's nice and warm. Now, a freeze event like this will knock them back down a good bit. Uh, but, yeah, th- spotted sea trout comprised about 60 to 70% of those game fish that, wow. that died along the coast. And by and large, the biggest portion of those were in that bay system, lower the lower Laguna Madre, upper Laguna Madre, that bay system below Corpus Christi. So what percentage of total f- speckled trout population do you think was lost to the freeze event? You know, that's, that's a hard thing to put a number on, Landon. Um, certainly we did see, you know, catch rates go down. And we don't have a, you know, a, to answer your question, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what the overall total would have been, you know, prior to the freeze. But the way we measure that is the catch rates in our in our spring gill nets. So right after that freeze, in beginning of, or mid-April, we initiate a 10-week gill net sampling period. And right now we're in that 10-week period of, for the fall. So what we do is we look at those catch rates in our gill nets from each and in every base system along the coast, from the Sabine Lake all the way down to the lower Laguna Madre, and we compare those catch rates to over 45 years of other spring gill net catch rates. And as expected, we saw some decreased catch rates, you know, um, 30 to 40 percent in various base systems, the 30 to 40 percent decrease from the last 10-year average. So we kind of expected that in the uh, Laguna Madre system. Uh, What we also saw, and we heard anecdotally from angler reports and, you know, from what I call citizen scientists that go out and, you know, photograph and document fish kills as well. uh, We saw a pretty large kill in uh, Matagorda, Matagorda Bay and San Antonio Bay. Um, so we've got we've got some work to do. We've got some. We think we've got some management uh, techniques and some strategies that we can implement. Uh, and we we took emergency action back in March. I don't know if y'all knew that, but we did mm-hmm. take emergency action where we reduced the the bag limit in the Laguna Madre system, which is something I wanted to ask about. Sure. So, uh, I saw. We, I know that we took the emergency action uh, for like the early part. But then we noticed when these new licenses and stuff came out yeah. that those restrictions were still there, but it doesn't necessarily – it sounds like y'all have set it up to where y'all can remove it at any time because as you read the regulations, like if you're coming from out of state and you knew nothing about it and you didn't find it and do your research, that it's still the old regulation. Uh, well, and let me let me clarify, we can – by law, we can implement an emergency action for 120 days, and then we have the option to extend it another 60 days. So 
we implemented that emergency action on April 1, and as it, as it turns out, it expired just this last Monday. So okay. the bag limits in the, in the Laguna Madre went from three for the emergency action. Now they're back up to five. Okay. Because okay. you guys ex- ex- went as far as you could with the We did. We took that. We maxed it out. We got right. 180 days where we can do that. Now we also have, and I know we're diving into, you know, fish and wildlife regulatory policy here. No, but that's this is fine. This is no, something. That's, 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 that's what it is. We're, we're nerdy. <laughs> yeah. But y'all are the like, crew for this. No talk about no. Yeah. So it's part of our, part of our statewide, what we call our statewide cycle. And that's where, you know, biologists from, you know, fish and wildlife, uh, both of our, you know, all three resource divisions, they come together and they make recommendations for bag limits, link limits, season limits, uh, such as your migratory bird, um, you know, your duck duck seasons. So we come together and we make those recommendations to our commission. And those, com- those items, if approved, and we gather throughout that process, there's a large uh, component of gathering public input through public hearings and through the web- our website. So we gather all that information, um, and then we go back to the commission, and we seek adoption of, you know, some rule changes. And then those would go back into effect. Those would go into effect on September 1, the new license year, right? So we also have an option to kind of accelerate anything. If we felt the need to really accelerate a regulation change, uh, we have the option to do that. And we're, we're currently evaluating whether we need to put those protective measures in place prior to about April, March, when those spotted sea trout start spawning again. They, they're batch spawners, so they'll spawn anywhere from April through now, through September. So what we'd like to do is protect, you know, the maximum number of, you know, um, viable spawning females through that spawning season. So we could, you know, through the regulatory process, put a, put a change in place. I guess what I was truly trying to ask um, – is this is going to kind of be a two-parter is do the biologists who monitor the the speckled seed trout do they feel like it's kind of bumped back up and they're happy with it going back up to the five limit or do they wish that they should have put in for this new season the lower limits and if that's the case why can't we do that yeah no that that's a that's a great question um, we've seen in the past, we've seen in the past after those, those benchmark, you know, large freeze events back in the eighties that mother ma- nature, mother nature, nature, we don't give, we don't give her enough credit and those systems will often recover on their own. And what we've seen in the past is that spotted sea trout population will recover on its own after about two to three years, two to three okay. years, you'll okay. get those catch rates recovered. So like now, the little, like three limit versus five limit is not yeah. going to really like you said, fight Mother Nature when... And, you know, kind of peeling back the layers of the onion here, Zach, I mean, it would take the course of a generation to see Mm -hmm. what we would hope... The changes we we implemented over the course of a generation, you would get 27%, about 30% increase in spawning stock biomass. And what that means is those viable females. So over the course of one generation, so it takes a little time. So you're right, there's no magic bullet. There's no silver bullet. Even if we shut the fishery down, it's going to take time for Mother Nature to, you know, run its course and and to recruit more, more fish into the stock. Um, your question about why couldn't, because there's going to be a gap. 
you know, even if we fast track this regulatory package, there's going to be a gap there. And simply, it's just the way that the, the regulatory timelines work. Okay. It really is. And we wanted to give ourselves time to evaluate evaluate those spring gill nets. And we, we got those finished in about uh, June 15th. And then it took us, you know, about two weeks to analyze them and to see. And by that time, we're already, we're already into August. So, Yeah. Um, what has public perception been of, because it's easy for us. So like, we're mostly catch and release, you know, keep an occasional fish. Yeah. Um, you know, we're typically but, pro conservation, whatever it takes. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, I'm not keeping five fish. I might keep one fish, right, you know? So right. if they're lowering it to three, doesn't I'm, really affect me. I'm pro meat harvesting. No, yeah. we all are. Yeah. We're all pro meat harvesting. Right. But, but we're not going out there getting our limits every time we go out. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. Every but time I go to... That's shitty fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> so so this, is a, this is a great example of the challenge that we, we face every day is trying to balance that, trying mm-hmm. to balance the opportunity to go out and have a great wilderness experience in our bays, catch fish. If you want to release them, awesome. If you want to catch and, you know, under, and catch up to your bag limit, awesome. Um, so what we did is... You know, we're we're looking at that, and Landon asked the question. Um, you know, what is the what is the public sentiment? And as you may ex- ex- expect, it ranges, and it ranges geographically. You know, certain areas of the coast, uh, that lower lower Laguna, by and large, folks are more. I would say they're more conservation minded, and they were very supportive of it. We had folks, if, and I'll just kind of paint the picture of the spectrum here. We had folks that said, "Hey, you should shut the fishery down for you know." Two to three years, no fishing, no spotted sea trout fishing. And then we had folks say, you know, just let Mother Nature take its course. Don't change anything. You've seen that, you know, these fish will recover over, you know, three years. And so we try to strike that balance. You know, we want to try to, and we knew that, you know, this isn't, again, this isn't the silver bullet, but what it could do is it could accelerate that recovery, you know, mm. kind of fast track that. It takes recovery. three years normally. It might take a year and a half, two uh, years. You know, that's the, that's the hope, right. Zach, is you kind of, you know, use this, this regulatory mechanism or these tools that we have as resource managers to serve as a catalyst to, you know, kind of speed up the process, um, process of recovery. So at the same time, we felt that three, you know, if Cliff wants to go out and he's got the, you know, the box full of ice and he wants to take a few fish home, we felt that three is reasonable. You know, you can still, you know, serve your, you know, catch, catch your three fish bag limit and, uh, you know, enjoy fish for your family and, you know, um, have a great time. So that's uh, that's kind of the, the challenge that we're all. Yeah, I was not with. upset by the lower regulations. I understood it one hundred percent. I just yeah. wanted to put that out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I mean they're good questions. No, yeah. but I mean Landon's point is is a good one. But uh, for that one, Landon, by and large, we we heard resounding support for that. Okay, support for that. Yeah. You, I originally called you to come on the podcast because I knew you as an entomologist. Yeah, yeah, match yeah. the hatch kind of thing. Match the you know, hatch, that's yeah. that was my previous and, career. Yeah, and then background. he was like, "Well, I'm the deputy director of coastal fisheries." Like, well, that'll be more interesting to talk about. But uh, how did you get into fly fishing and get into 
or fly fishing archaeology, yeah, entomology, yeah. and wildlife resource work. Sure, this is going to be the fun one. Yeah, I was hoping for these questions. You know, so I grew up in the uh, resort fly fishing destination area of uh, Lubbock, Texas. Hey, record. Yeah, so, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as you all know, uh, plenty of Playa Lakes out in Lubbock. And yeah. so I grew up on a, on a street that had, you know, anytime there's a Playa Lake, and especially the urban setting of Lubbock, they incorporate a little park and all that around yep. it. At the end of our street, we were blessed with a nice big Playa Lake, but also uh, we took it upon ourselves to carve out a little area for a dirt BMX track, and we had a little baseball diamond over there. So my buddies and I would ride our BMX bikes down to the Playa Lake, and I, I mean, I, I'm I'm certain my father taught me how to fish, but soon after that, it was peel off the training wheels, and we were down there on that Playa Lake as often as we could, fishing for sunfish and big carp primarily, really? fishing mm-hmm. for kernel corn with carp. Yeah. And that was kind of my earliest, and I'm talking, you know, five, six, seven years old. We were going down to those Playa Lakes and just fishing all we could. Um, you know, and then the fly fishing thing came more along. We always, um, you know, middle-class family vacationing, being in Lubbock, vacationing in northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. Um, I was a boy scout growing up and spent some time in uh, Philmont, Philmont Scout Ranch in Cimarron, New Mexico, and met uh, Doc Thompson, who's a renowned yeah. Orvis oh, fly fishing Doc guide. Yeah. So he, when I was a third, so we need to get him on the. Podcast. Oh, he's he's a great, great man, great mentor, uh, icon in the fly fishing industry. Yep. So when I attended Philmont and went up to uh, Camp Riado, which is the fly fishing camp at the Scout Ranch, Doc was the instructor. I think he was you know four or five. He's probably four or five years older than me. So. So he was a teenage instructor at that point. So that's where I really kind of caught on to fly fishing and really didn't kind of pick it up until I moved to uh, Colorado. Didn't pick it up again until I moved to Colorado after uh, after graduate school. But always enjoyed uh, fishing. And, you know, our, our family had a family farm and ranch there just east of, uh, east of Lubbock, where my papa was a cotton farmer, cattle rancher. So, you know, always going out there and, you know, fishing the tanks, but also hunting dove, back then hunting quail. Uh, They didn't have so much deer back then. Now they do. They'll have a great population of mule deer in that, that, you know, eastern. Hunting train? No, not not at that age. Now, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, But, yeah, that's kind of how I got, you know, got fired up about hunting and fishing. I had some great, you know, blessed to have great role models, great to have you know, mentors in my life through my father, uncles, grandfathers that were, you know, hunters and anglers, but really um, land stewards as well, really big land stewards. So, you know, had some great models to to emulate that. And, uh, yeah, it's, I knew early on I wanted to do something outside. I didn't know what that was, but, you know, kind of, you know, fell into the fisheries world. And, yeah, you mentioned how we met, and I was a trout biologist in Colorado for many years, so did a lot of insect, you know, insect research and studies, and then fell upon a group just like this, you know, just a group of, of folks that loved to hunt and fish, and, except we were in Colorado, and these guys were hardcore fly fishermen. So it was like, you know, he was talking about, uh, Cliff's talking about, you know, well, when I go out, I don't blow the duck call. I think there's a lot to be said and a, a big benefit for not always being the top dog in the hunting pack because you can, you know, I really learned a lot from, uh, you know, being kind of the, you know, the junior 
junior team member on that that fishing crew and now as you all have seen it you know now oftentimes it seems like if i take somebody fishing sometimes i'm the top dog and they can learn from me so i think it's it's really you know it's beneficial to be on both ends of that that learning continuum to sometimes Mm -hmm. be the top dog sometimes be in the middle but sometimes be the quacker out there i feel like the way to approach any outdoor endeavor is do your best but don't overdo what you can't do yeah absolutely like be willing your limit sort of thing yeah be willing to learn from other people if you're not the best one in the blind or on the flat let learn from the people who are better than you but give your best don't just sit out there and be like well because i'm not the best one i'm just gonna sit here and twiddle my thumbs and not pay attention yeah, like that's, actually do your best. Try and learn something. And that's where a big part of that bonding, and I don't, I don't mean to get too spiritual here, but that, that's, that camaraderie, that teamwork, yeah. right? I mean, passing along those skills and abilities and, and knowledge of, you know, different resource, different critters. Um, that's why, that's where Landon ran into me is because I love educating and sharing my knowledge about, you know, stream, river and stream invertebrates, bugs, uh, kind of a geeky topic, but you know, a geeky topic that fly fishermen really gravitate towards. So if you have a little <laughs> bit of that knowledge, yeah. I mean, you've all sat around and folks are dropping, you know, oh, that's a that's a calabatus. And yeah. This is a, you know, this type of a crane fly or something. And it, folks sound like So let's set the story straight yeah. right now on the podcast. How important is that to fly fishing? That not, not, knowledge. Not important at all, um, unless you're wanting to really kind of impress I don't know who you're who you'd want. It's to not girls. But no, but it, you know, <laughs> that's yeah, right. Dang sure, right, right. <laughs> but you know, Atlantic yeah, gets excited. gets excited. I'll still fly. Yeah, right. Atlantic, you probably heard me say this. I mean, I'll, I'll say, drop some curse words here. I mean, the fish don't care about the elbows and assholes of a fly. They care about the size, the shape, and the color. Right, the size, shape, and color. That's that's what fly anglers and especially fly tires. Um, you know, I think that's at the fundamental concept that, that we should take away from, you know, our knowledge of inverted, but also the kind of the life cycle, you know, when things are hatching, how big a hatch are they doing? Are they, you know, they're hatching downstream? Do they, the bugs move up? Do they move down? So there's a lot of different, you know, layers that you can really kind of geek out on to get a better understanding. And it's just like weather, you know, any of the other environmental variables when you go out and y'all mentioned earlier in one of your podcasts about the the fourth fourth R being research, and that that's a huge component. That uh, yeah, I don't that know. That was me. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice work. I mean, that was uh, you know that that's a huge component of of just understanding your environment, all the conditions at play. So you have a you know you you automatically before you even step out of the truck, you got a little bit of an edge, you know that that sets the stage for success, and we we know that. You know, once you have a successful, you know, experience in the woods or the waters, you're you're destined to repeat it. And after time, you kind of work up into that, you know, that hierarchy of your your little hunting pack, and you may share that experience with others. Uh, I have a question. <clears throat> uh, UV when it comes to flies, yeah, do you think it's important. 
you know, like UV glue. Well, no, no, because like, or just like ultraviolet, a, like th- yeah. color throw. Because I know there's like some theories that like younger f- trout can see UV, but the older they get, they lose that ability to actually right. see. And that. And there's materials that are infused with UV spectrum colors. Yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on it. I'm just, I'm just. No, kidding. you're yeah, you're right. Really I mean, that was so. Cliff, you wouldn't believe. I mean, when that first came out, I had folks, I had fly tying buddies that just totally shifted mm. away from the materials they had. And they went, they were tying nothing but UV materials because mm-hmm. they subscribed to this philosophy that, yeah, fish can see it somehow. See, I don't know if I buy into yeah. that. I really don't. I think, you know, at the core of, an, of these animals, especially now we're talking trout, they have a brain about the size of a pea. Mm-hmm. They're animals. Yeah. They they're didn't get, you know, they didn't grow to be bigger fish by being that selective. Yeah. You know, I think they see the size, shape, the size, right size, shape, and color in the drift, and they're opening their mouth and they're looking to just eat that steady stream of right. cheeseburgers, yeah. right? Uh, one of my colleagues at Parks and Wildlife, um, he did a, a gut content analysis, and by and large, with the biggest portion of gut content within rainbow trout on the at least on the guadalupe here was uh detritus you know some algae or leaves so that tells you hey they're when they see that stuff in the drift they're not they're not shying away from it if it's that again that That size size. shape and color they're going to eat that stuff right yeah so I don't know if I subscribe. It's certainly yeah. a great you've, uh, marketing technique. For sure. And that's what yeah. I was asking because you know, yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah. But, again, I do subscribe to what gives you the confidence. Yeah. Right? First, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's it's, weird. Yeah. You have your confidence flies. You're not doing anything Absolutely. different. You're just fishing Absolutely. it with confidence. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Yep. You start pulling them out. Yep. Goes into that mindset. Yeah. So yeah. let's transition back over to the coastal fisheries. You told us before the podcast this year will be the 800 millionth red drum stocking. Yeah, in the state. Man, that, that, that is isn't a, that, that's a daunting figure. Isn't it, it is. It's yeah, crazy. and we, you know, when I say, you know, when I really, and I'm bragging on our, our hatchery program. I got a question yeah. based off that. When you say 800th millionth, or 800 millionth red drum stocking, are you saying 800 million red drum? Like individually put out or stocking group? No, uh, we're talking individual size, and they're they're okay. fingerlings or fry mm-hmm. that we stock in the bay. But as I was about to say, eight hundred stocking groups—that's a lot of fish. <laughs> well, we, I mean, in our hatchery between uh, the Marine Development Center down in Corpus and Sea Center, sort of our our keystone, um, you know, hatchery facility there in Lake Jackson. Um, they're pumping out about 20 million, 20 million redfish per year. And by and large, it is the largest, uh, we're the greatest producer in the world of red drum. I got a question. Uh, fisheries such as like, uh, breeding programs for fish, if it's a coastal fish, do they try and do that closer to the coast and, or is it even like right on the coast where they can just like open up a door and it's like chill them out? Excellent question. We, and we, we put way too much work into this. We, <laughs> we really study the study and we have a, a dedicated habitat team that feeds into those decisions about, okay, where do you have some, you know, uh, marsh habitat and areas that aren't beat up with uh, wind and wave action? And what are the conditions on any given day? Is it low tide, high tide? And all that feeds into stocking location. Stocking location. Where do you do it? Do we do it with, you know, the 
the trailer back up and we just open up the trailer with the six inch pvc and shoot them into the water yeah we do that sometimes oftentimes we'll use nets we'll just net brigade them and go dump them into the water sometimes we stock them in boats we load up live wells on the boats and carry them out because there's no suitable habitat within that area so we really put a lot of thought um, and planning and research into where we stock how we stock what conditions we stock under do you do you have any idea this might be a hard number to calculate but how many of those 800 million uh, red drum. What's the percentage of those that you believe make it into adulthood? A uh, limit size yeah. fish. I was, that was yeah. what I was no, just about no. to say. So. Great question. Uh, we we estimate, and I've, we've seen research that suggests that anywhere from you know as low as nine percent to as high as about twenty percent even survive. Okay, because okay. as soon as you're in the water. It's it's game on, right? You're, yeah. yeah, I mean, everybody's trying yeah, to eat it's you. It's a fish eat fish world <laughs> out there. So if you think about that, nine to twenty percent even survive, um, and then survive old enough to recruit into the fishery. And when I say recruit into the fishery, that means that tw- for redfish, twenty to twenty eight, right? That that yeah. slot limit. That's the fishery, um, at least for us for us anglers. I would say it's pretty low. I think it's pretty low. I'd be happy, you know. I'd be just over the moon if research came back out and said, well, two, two to 10% make it into that. But we do have some information that we can trace back some of the genetic markers that we can, we can look back and say, you know, some of these hatchery fish, they do make it all the way through into that, um, into that, into that population. Do you know how long it takes for a fry to, to become a 23 inch fish? Oh, and redfish, that's, golly, that's probably four, four to five years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the funny thing, here's another kind of factoid. We're not even fishing, so we're protecting that 20 to 28, and then you can have that one over 28, that tagged redfish. Mm -hmm. Those fish, 20 to 28, they're not even reproductively mature yet. Those Those fish don't even spawn. Yeah, those are juvenile. Those are juvenile fish. The ones that are making it out through the passes and out into the Gulf are those bulls. Those big ones. Yep. Yeah, those big ones. It's the only fishery that I know of that is like that. That we're we're what we say we're we're prosecuting the fishery on juvenile fish. So what do other fisheries do? Is it twenty eight and up that they're they're? No, let's say let's say largemouth bass. I mean, a, a bass is reproductive at about twelve inches. Yeah. So you can keep, you're keeping, by and large, all the other fisheries, you're keeping mature adults, gotcha. sex, sexually mature adults. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're talking about the redfish. Is, yeah, is specifically. unique in that. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's just the life cycle, uh, you know, kind of the life history and growth of the redfish that is that indicates that, that leads us to managing it a little differently. Yeah. yeah. Do y'all ever use, uh, like, trackers in any of the fish that – are released we do we do we partner with a lot of uh golly a lot of our academic partners a&m um utmsi there in port aransas yeah and we do some radio telemetry yeah and then we set out receivers on the passes you know their entry points mm-hmm. you know technically the bay inlets or so the passes out in jetties and we can pick up their their signals as they move past those points gotcha. and what does yeah. that look like is it 
embedded into their skin or is it like a little antenna that's just kind of sticking out no and come it, out? it's both it's both so we did a lot of this work on uh, on blue sucker and guadalupe bass on the colorado river i worked on projects three four maybe five years ago some radio telemetry where you surgically what you do is you catch these fish and you then you knock them out you anesthetize them in a cooler and then you put them on a tray and you surgically implant you use a scalpel and you slit them open you put a, a you know and this thing's about as big as a double a battery about a double a battery wow okay. uh, and then it's got a long antenna and we have uh you know a 12 to 14 an- foot 12 to 14 inch antenna hanging out of the fish and then we suture them up we sew them back up and that that tag will last about two years and if that fish is harvested during that time, let's say it's a red drum or a, a Guadalupe bass, then it's got a little, uh, you know, please call Landon Rowlett at, you know, at uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife so he can, you know, track this fish. You look at TPWD now? <laughs> we're not supposed to talk about where we were. <laughs> so how does, a, how does a 12 to 14 inch antenna hanging out of a fish affect their, I mean, it has to affect their streamline yeah. ability. You're worried about the antenna. To... How does cutting a four inch hole into a fish they suture them up. I, yeah. I trust TPWD. <laughs> and, and, I, if I got a cut right now, I would let this man <laughs> stitch me up. Not right. you guys. I, I've, se- I've seen Rambo. I could probably do that. Um, you know, that's a great question because, uh, you know, the you're hoping to. The purpose is not to impede any of the natural behavior. Because it has to an create animal. drag. You know, but the thing is that antenna is about as uh, thick as like uh, uh, your monofilament line okay it's, so it's very thin yeah uh it it's very uh you know malleable Wavy. yes it is it's not a hard antenna it's like a it is it's like a thick piece of monofilament have okay. you seen those yeah. uh, off topic have you seen that when they release those little horned lizards and they got the radio antenna collar that's sticking off of them and they're like that long it's like a little little like it, honestly it's like an antenna that sticks out the back of their neck that's like six times longer than they are <laughs> I mean, I've yeah. seen it definitely on like in animals, like uh, land animals, and I'd, I've never thought about it. But like in water, everything creates drag. That's why, like swimmers, like Olympic swimmers, they'll wax and shave every hair off their body to reduce <laughs> drag to gain a thousandth of a speed yeah. second. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, so their we, tag we fish see aren't winning any marathon. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, we see these fish. I mean, I'll say, for instance, we saw Guadalupe bass, who most folks think are, you know, they're river fish, but most folks think they're, they're habitat oriented, they're structure oriented fish. We saw, which just really blew us away, after high flow events, some of those, you know, flood events on the Colorado, that those Guadalupe bass would move up to 25 river miles. Oh, 25 wow. river miles with with antennas and you know um, tracking tracking devices embedded with them and that that uh, that that signals to us hey that antenna ain't slowing yeah, with high down. flows too so yeah they're, they're so with that yep. be, with that being said and you might have covered it and it's like slipping my mind or went over my head how far on average average would you say a red normally travels like what's their wow. home range versus wow, out yeah, that's a good question. Um, we see... Because it sounded like the bulls will go off and they'll wonder oh, yeah, and make they it will. out. No, but. they will. At, at Once they become mature adults and reproductive adults, they will move out into the Gulf. So 
maybe you know 50 to 100 miles maybe maybe wow. shorter maybe farther I'm just, and they come in every year for that's that right they come season. back yep they come around the jetties and the passes to do that okay. yep yep yeah um we see i don't know if you've heard of kind of the surf runner surf runner life um life stage of of spotted sea trout some spotted sea trout will stay their residents within their bays but some and we don't know exactly this phenomenon is yet to be figured out some get in the surf and run the lengths of the base and run along uh, the gulf side too so they'll run run out on the gulf but run near shore near shore to the to the um, barrier islands and just run up and down the coast so you're talking you know again you know, potentially hundreds of miles that they're home range that wow. they need to be moving. Like, like they're not moving yeah. out far. Away no, they're shore. just yep. going. Yep. They're, just, they're moving yep. a long. That's distance. why they call them surf runners because they're yeah. moving kind of laterally up and down the coast. Wow. Yeah, now, that's a cool phenomenon. Now, those bull reds that will get out into the Gulf and stuff like that, or fish that are typically a bay fish or a inlet marshy type fish, when they do make it out into the Gulf. Or do they still try and stay like top water column area, or will they go kind of deep you know, as um, well? Because to me, it would seem like a red. They're always going to want to be closer to the top of the water, but that's yeah. not where necessarily their food source is going to be in that instance. And, and I can tell you this: when fish are, you know, sometimes when fish are in that reproductive mode, and that's only they're laser focused on reproduction, they don't care about food. They'll, really? care, but they'll, they'll, they'll go a while without eating. Well, you see those but bass they only, in the spawning season. They're just they right. only breed yeah. skeletons. inland, though. But these bulls are going out 50 to 100 miles right. into the Gulf. Right. What are they doing? I guess, like, that 50 to 100-mile marker on a bull red, I mean, you get that far out into the Gulf, it's deep. It is deep. It's yeah. deep. Yeah. It's yeah. not like... And I understand, like, when they come inland to breed, sure, they're not thinking about food, but I'm thinking about what are they doing. If Obviously, if they're that 50, 25, 50, 100 miles offshore, they're not thinking about breeding. Yeah. No, and that 20, that 100 is probably a little far. Um, you know, um, what we see with, with flounder, as they're a bottom, bottom fish, they'll go out and, of course, they stay on the bottoms. Um, and it really, it depends on any of those given fishes kind of reproductive strategy. And, you know, they've got all kind of different egg types, you know, some of them float, some of them float, some of them kind of stick together and they ball up and then they, they stick on, you know, substrate on the sand. So, you know, it kind of depends on any of their given life history. And that's, that's what draws a lot of us, you know, geeky kind of biologist type into this field is once you start peeling back the layers of onion, the onion i guess what i'm saying is does that not that pressure at those depths and them going to the bottom not affect them well i was gonna ask how deep yeah. is our gulf I, I mean is it oh yeah i mean it, once you're off guys once you're off what i mean and that depends on which part of the right which part of the coast out. you're off yeah. but yeah you're off you know 10 miles and you're you know 60 to 100 foot deep yeah. Um, and those fish may not be down at the bottom doing right. that. Right. They may be mid-column moving out that way. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. but it's not like miles deep. No. That's no, no, no. Our, yeah. our, no, no, not, our, not on our gulf shelf. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to move to some listener questions. Uh, Cassio asked. Um, hey, Cassio. Does TPWD have any active programs working with tarpon? You know, we had the um, the Tarpon Observation Network, and that was 
that was a, a citizen science-based app that we maintained. It was a web-based app that we maintained on the web so folks could report their observations, right? So they could report the date, the time, and location. Well, as you may imagine, um, some anglers aren't too forthcoming with their, you know, their location information <laughs> of seed seed tarpon, <laughs> right? So what we saw over time is it was all our observations. It was all TPWD, you know, while we're off and we would see tarpon or we would collect them in our gill nets or we'd collect them in our, you know, our trawls or anything else that we were submitting that. And we didn't get a whole lot of angler information. So, you know, we kind of, yeah, we kind of put the pause button on that, that program. Um, Landon, they're just not, you know, for us, while tarpon are very majestic and they're an icon, you know, uh, fish out in the, especially, you know, over in Florida, and we're getting more and more, you know, anglers target them. For us, they just haven't achieved that, uh, you know, status for us to, to, that we need to intensively manage them. Um, I think it's really neat to to track them and see what their movements are on a seasonal basis. Certainly, we keep track of their records, their records, but we don't have any management are the uh, programs are the place. tarpons that Texas does have? I, I have I have two questions on it. Are the tarpons that Texas do have? Are they more residential tarpon? Or are they migratory? Yeah, they're all they're all migratory. They're all migratory. Yeah, they're moving through. Are they coming up here to like breed and stuff, and then they're coming back out and heading south to like Belize and all that? Well, I don't even know. I think you it's know. more chasing food, isn't it? They're chasing food, they're breeding, and they're they're just they're running the Gulf. They're, just they're running constantly. the Gulf. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're a, they're a highly you know they're they're a migratory species. And it's been told to me that at one point, Port Aransas, Rockport area was the tarpon capital yeah. of the world. Is yeah. is that actually true? And then I've heard that the tarpon are supposed to be coming back more so to this area, or is that just like? Uh, we've seen we've seen a few come up and now we're all happy right right and i don't you know i certainly you know want to give a nod to the port aransas area and that era where you know the the tarpon in and you know um, teddy roosevelt chasing tarpon and i think that's that's really special as far as our our history and our, our natural resources i just don't know that um you know that if those tarpon to say we were designated as the tarpon kings or tarpon you know king of the world what was florida during doing during that time i can't imagine that florida didn't have you know um the the large migrations and population of tarpon also what we are seeing is more more anglers are targeting them and the anglers as we talked earlier offline that the anglers that are targeting them targeting tarpon are really good at what they're doing you know, whether it's vote from boat-based tarpon fishing or it's uh, jetty, jetty fishing. You know, the folks that target those tarpon as they're making their migrations. They know when to go. They know how to, how to fish for them. And what we're hearing is these folks, are they're highly successful at what they're doing. Uh, Cassio's second question, why are you still allowed to harvest a tarpon in Texas? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Well, you can only harvest a tarpon greater than the state record. So the, the, the length limit is the state record. So wow, okay. if you okay. have, if you are, if you catch the and state record. And that's to record, allow you to mount it. 
Is that is that, <laughs> is, that, is, that, is, that is that kind of the thought process? That's like, is probably that a verification thing. It is because it is. this guy caught yep. the based on my story. Yeah, earlier. your your white catfish story. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so that's where we be set. Ver- the, it's got to be verified. Yep. That's where we set the minimum length limit. Is that the so record? if the if that's the record cool. is currently say I'm just throwing numbers out there, thirty inches, and then someone catches, yeah, I know. And then someone catches thirty-one inches. Does that new the new like harvest re- requirement make it thirty-two inches in order to require it That's to right. harvest it? Okay, That's right. So yeah, it keeps building target. on itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that minimum length limit is not going down. Yeah, it's not going down. We're going to keep moving that up with which. And uh, that record was record. broken like two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe yeah. so. Yeah, so. I like how you giggled at it. <laughs> uh, yeah. that's a, but that's a neat system, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean it keeps it working, and, and it's you know while it is a big fish, it's it's one fish. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Another question we got is it's a super neat way to do it. Though. Do your <laughs> do your friends? This is from Gabe. Do your friends know? That you Tenkara fish, we just put you out as a Tenkara oh, fish. That's hilarious. The that's hilarious. Um, no, I keep that. No, I, <laughs> you know, and I, Gabe, I appreciate that. Um, you know, is in an evolution with anyone's, you know, sporting, whether it's shotgun shooting and you know, or or bow hunting. I've kind of evolved into different. You know, I'm always trying to figure out the next, uh, you know, a couple of years back, I was into Euro nymphing, you know, really trying to figure that out. And that's just, for me, that's just chasing the next challenge, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I moved up to Colorado, it was all about dry flies and nymph fishing. And then when I moved back to Texas, oh, wow, on the quad for trout fishing, it was all just nymph fishing. But I would get bored of that. I would get tired of doing that after about... You know, the first year I moved back to Texas from Colorado, my brother and I fished 16 weekends in a row on the Guadalupe River. And that, you know, I was just trying to figure it out. I was trying to learn it and figure it out and get good at it. By about week week four, I was bored of nymph fishing. So I kind of moved into streamer fishing or catching, you know, those late evening in certain parts of the river you can dry fly fish, yeah. you know, so soon enough. And then Tinkara came out. So, yeah, I bought a couple of Tinkara rods. I enjoy Tinkara. I loved. Um, you and I, Zach both. I, 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 I love taking my son out uh, when he was, you know, three, four, and putting him on, you know, a really shorter kind of Tinkara rod where he didn't have to deal with all the, the line. And he I could put that kid on fish on a Tinkara rod. Um, so yes, I, I have the full arsenal, the quiver of, you know, standard, standard fly rods, Euro nymphing rods, but yes, I do have a couple of Tinkara in there. I, have, I probably need to dust them off and I'm not ashamed to, uh, admit that I will dust those off. Now, just, just cause he said that I'm going to fish Tinkara this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Josh asked, what's your favorite fish recipe? You know, um, I do enjoy... Just a, a grilled, yeah. Fresh and shrimp plate. No, no, I'd really like a blackened grilled redfish on the half shell. Oh, yeah. That's one of my faves. Um, little lemon, you know, little seasoning, fresh, never frozen. Leave the leave the leave the skin on. Um, I could eat a whole fillet or probably two fillets by myself. I really enjoy that. Um, yeah. Uh, I used to uh, really enjoy y'all. Y'all talked about catfish, and I completely agree with you know you can taste a fish where it 
where it came from, especially catfish. I used to work in grad school. I worked on a uh, catfish farm, and for some of our pay, we would get paid in cash, but we'd also get paid in live catfish with cool, coolers full of catfish. So throughout grad school, I had a steady diet of catfish. And I, <laughs> I cooked catfish balls, cat, grilled catfish, fried catfish. I think it's hard to beat um, good fried fresh catfish from you know um that to me that's the good. only way to truly do catfish i, I don't like it. i don't like it any other way but fried i like you know i'll do a good catfish taco yeah really yeah i'll grill catfish i grew up having like seasoned catfish like lemon pepper catfish or cajun catfish and stuff and the only know. way i've been able to truly get catfish down and truly enjoyed has just been fried i think now fried and is i'm the way not to go. i'm not afraid to admit that now there's other fish that it's like yeah i would never touch to a fryer but yeah a catfish you, want, you don't want deep fried redfish no nah, i want it i, w- I would <laughs> want it charred and yeah no grilled. Black, so you, you, you know it's really good to eat and some of the listeners may not may not like me for saying this but black bass is really good to eat. Really, uh, it is absolutely. Um, and you, you know, I say that because when I went to school in East Texas, um, Lake Nacogdoches had a protective slot, and I, th- I think the protective slot was fifteen to twenty, so you couldn't retain fish in there. And the idea was for folks to harvest fish below fifteen, right? Because they had you know too many fish out there they're trying to restructure the population so we went out there and we would catch you know 14 13 12 inch fish and we would we would hammer them we'd catch our five and we would eat you know we were, i was kind of a sustenance college kid eating fish all the time and they were absolutely delicious you're out sfa yeah yeah dacus what's the most memorable fish that you've caught one that just oh, like sticks in your head. Yeah, your head I'll go. Me. I'll go here recently, because um, uh, there's lots. Being you know a, a lifetime angler, one would be with my son um, on Bull Creek when, and this was within the last ten years when he he wasn't even three, and I did. T- it wasn't ten car rod, um, Gabe, but it uh, <laughs> we took him out to Bull Creek the first time he'd been wade fishing with me. It was. I think it was one of the spots that Orvis, one of the Orvis 101 classes went out. I used out. to teach a bunch of classes at Bull Creek. That's a wonderful spot. Great sp- spot to wade. And I would cast over to the, uh, went early morning with my son, cast over to the, to the, to the shoreline. And those green sunfish would just about eat anything you threw at them. And he, w- he was too young to cast. So I'd just give him the, the rod and he would just squeal every time a fish came up he knew what was happening so that was a memorable a memorable one another one was here just recently a uh, couple of years ago a buddy of mine and I went up into Colorado and chased a real grand cutthroat and it wasn't the fish per se it was the pursuit to get to the fish and he had a really nice kind of lifted overland Toyota Tacoma um, and we went through some some roads and some Jeep trails that I thought we were going to just destroy that Tacoma. And it, um, it, it did really well. It was a white knuckle drive to say the least. And once we got there, it was nobody up there. And just, uh, you know, the, the Rio Grande cutthroat trout, it acted like they'd never seen a fly. And we just caught, you know, 
I don't know, hand after hand of, you know, you know, 12 inch, 12 inch or so Rio Grande. Still though. Yeah, it was fun. It's a lot of fun. That yeah. sounds like a fun trip. Yeah, we went over the pass. We did not come back that same road. We're like, <laughs> we, we've got to go. Do something what, different. We could have taken the same road back, which would have been about an hour and a half. What we ended up doing is taking a four hour drive back to where we started. Wow. Just, just to not go through that road again. Yeah. Mm. So that was pretty memorable. Yeah. Good times. So uh, you mentioned that there's going to be some changes coming to the flounder fishery. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, our flounder, um, they're in, the flounder stocks are in decline throughout their range, and their, their range extends all the way up into North, South Carolina, but then even into the Gulf states due to warming warming water temperatures as a result of, you know, climate change or whatever else you want to point to, um, flounder stocks have declined. They've uh, their reproduction and recruitment into the fishery has been really low. So, for the first time, we are we are closing down the fishery um, during during probably the the peak of their their run, and that that run means when they're moving through out of the bays through the passes and into the gulf to spawn so we're closing down the fishery for six weeks is that an emergency action thing that nope, you did, or no or just a regulatory thing that came through that's part of the statewide cycle yeah okay. so like outdoor annual will have this that's in there. exactly right yeah that that took place a year or two ago and this is the first licensed year well, that will when that will become effective. So, and you're thinking this will be an annual thing every year from here on out. It will, and we'll continue to evaluate. Right. You know, um, looking at trends and patterns, and you know, not only recruitment, which is the small guys, the small fish, but also the adults, uh, both in our resource sampling monitoring through our, our gill nets, but also through a harvest for our creel surveys. So we'll continue to evaluate, but right now it's it doesn't have a term on it, doesn't have a sunset provision on it. So that's in that's on the. And you said it begins November 1st? November 1st through December 14th. Okay. You may not retain a flounder. Okay. And have the flounder, flounder just statistically been on the decline year it after has. year? Yeah, and we've tried. We've reduced bag limits. We've reduced uh, commercial commercial bag limits. We've upped the minimum size length. We're, you know, there's only so many knobs that we have as resource mm. managers to play with. And the regulatory, you know, you can manage the fish and you can stock more fish. You can manage the habitat. Or you can manage the people. You yeah. can manage the people. And so the regulations are definitely part of that managing the people to, to yeah. you know, accelerate the recovery of a stock of fish. And I guess you'll see. You said yeah. it takes about two to three, or it takes a generation. I yeah, guess. generation, about five to six years on okay. flounder. Yeah. So I know that, you know, some folks have, uh, you know, we heard that folks, so that's a time-honored tradition is fishing the passes during the, you know, during flounder the, run. the flounder run. But, you know, Mother Nature doesn't know the calendar, you know. So you can fish. You can fish. And, and if we have cooler temperatures, the flounder run may start a little earlier. So if you're fishing out there on Halloween, October 31st, you may be at the peak of the run. Right. Or if you're fishing the day after, you know, it, it opens on November 15th, you may be fishing at the peak of the run. So we just kind of targeted that sweet spot of the run to shut her down with the hopes and the purpose of accelerating, just like the spotted sea trout, accelerating that recovery, recruiting more fish into the fishery, um, giving them a chance. Cause you know, there are only so many bottlenecks we have in our base systems 
and they're concentrated through those passes. And I don't know if you've ever fished the flounder run, but it's it's not real hard to to you know land a bunch of flounder when they're moving through the passes and you're lined up on the jetties or at Sea Wolf Park or Bolivar Pen- mm. Peninsula. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Dak, before we finish up, uh, will you talk about the GRTU uh, Guadalupe River Trout Unlimited? youth trout camp yeah thanks for bringing that up landon so that's something that's very near and dear to my heart and we've kind of touched on that topic today so as a way to you know pass on the you know the legacy of you know a sportsman uh to you know share your passion your knowledge and your love for a sport uh about six years i think we created the youth trout camp so that's through guadalupe river trout unlimited where i serve as the uh the youth program chair and so what we do um, during the, the peak of the trout season, and this is over a three-day weekend in mid-January, MLK Day weekend, we bring out, you know, about two dozen kids aged 12 to 17. They stay on the river. They stay at uh, Rio Guadalupe River Resort and Riverside Cabins, and we introduce them to the fishery. Uh, we start off by stocking. Uh, they get to do some fly tying, some fly casting. They learn from, you know, professionals, uh, expert fly casters. Um, they learn fly tying. And then the, the kind of the peak of the weekend is on Sunday morning, they go out with guides. And the cool part about this is not just the kids. They get to bring along a parent or a guardian. A lot of folks have brought along their, their grandparents. Um, so, you know, it's a way to introduce the kiddo, the kid to the fishery, but it's also a way to recruit the parent into, you know, continuing to bring them and engage with them in the outdoors. So yeah. um, we had some great partners in that, that uh, program. Um, so we're looking forward to, you know, we were off last year because of COVID. Uh, we're looking forward to getting, you know, a couple of dozen kids out on the weekend and uh, that weekend and uh, sharing, sharing the Guadalupe trout fishery with them. Yeah, it's going to be a great weekend. That's awesome. And, and those applications are just went live on the website uh, yesterday. So if folks How many are people apply to, every year? You know, if initially, Landon, we just we took everybody we could. But now it's, it's a competitive process. Uh, last time we had it, there were 60 applicants, and we could only accept 24. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, I wish we could. We just logistically can't handle the numbers that apply. So um, <clears throat> get your applications in soon. Yeah. So. Is, there, is there a cutoff date? Yeah, it's November 7th, okay. so they're open for a good point. I mean, Zach, they're open for about a month. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that uh, green Yes, outfitters. I'd love to give a shout Yeah, shout go ahead out. and give a shout-out to them. No, That's absolutely. Really cool. Green Outfitters is just Tiffany and company over there um, and her team uh, have just been phenomenal partners throughout the years by even the, providing, you know, cash donations, but also, you know, providing guides, uh, helping out. And this year they, they really stepped up, the, up to the plate. Uh, a couple of weeks ago they hosted the Fly Fish and Film Tour at uh, Green Hall. At Green Hall, you know, <laughs> How, how, how much better can it get? Fly Fishing Film Tour, Green Hall, all proceeds benefiting the youth trout camp. So yes. green, uh, hats off to you all, green 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 outfitters and uh, Tiffany Yates and Do company. Do you know how they much really money they raised? Pay. I'm just curious. They are cutting us a check for $6,800. That is fantastic. Wow. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really. Yeah, that is over overly generous. And Really, that will what we're hoping to do is really reduce the hurdles or the cost barrier to entry into fly fishing. You know, there's a stigma associated with fly fishing that oh, it costs too much and this and that. Well, we're we're keeping the cost low at this camp, so 
you know, it's, it's more than affordable. Um, don't tell the kiddos, but they're getting a fly rod and reel out of the deal. So, you know, it's really setting the stage for their continued involvement into fly What's fishing. What's the age cutoff? You're too <laughs> old. <laughs> yeah. You should just apply just to make all the yeah, guys right. read through the applications laugh. <laughs> but it, what we do need is volunteers to help out as guides. If, you, okay. if you're a fishy, you know, you know the guad and know how to catch trout, you know, and want to serve, you know, take a kid and At what kid proficiency fishing. level? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you caught a fish on the, on right, the guad? Right. I've caught fish on the guad. <laughs> no, thanks Not for bringing many, that but up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'd also like to point out, by the time you listen to this, this is not going to be good information, but tomorrow is the day you sign up for the GRTU lease, so I cannot wait to hear either all the excited friends I have that got on the lease or the people that uh, waited till 1 p.m. to sign up and couldn't make it. Yeah. I'm going to get into work early so I have that T1 connection. <laughs> oh, you're just ready to go. Yep. You just yeah. hey boss, I, I need in on this. I might show up at the office early tomorrow. It's ready to go. There's a, a troll page uh, called Drama Lupe River on Instagram. Hilarious memes, and they took the GRTU uh, sign up poster that they post on Instagram, and they changed the date to the tenth. And I can only imagine that there's a couple people <laughs> out there <laughs> that don't know yeah. that that's a troll page. And are like mark their calendar for the tenth. I can only imagine. You know what? That though, if you don't people. know that Drama Lupe is a troll page <laughs> or like a meme page, then that's on you. Yeah. Like we don't need you out there on the river. <laughs> oh man. So good luck to everyone. By the time you hear this, it'll be old news, and so, you'll be frustrated. I hope you're happy. happy. Yeah. <laughs> but. Dacus, thank you for coming on. Hey, no, thank great. you all, Landon, Zach, Cliff. This is uh, this is fun. Y'all got y'all got a great thing going here. I I look forward to. I subscribed. I look forward to seeing many more, listening to many more of your podcasts. I, I really enjoyed this. So thank th- you. thank y'all. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I was gonna say it was something else, but I forgot what I was gonna say. Totally lost my train of thought. I don't know. Oh, we're going to have you. We had already spoken. We're going to have you back on to talk about entomology specifically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we can certainly do that. Yeah. Do it at the height of trout season. Yeah, when we'll the, do it. When yeah. the bug bug interest at, we can is at get, the peak. We, we can get nerdy about I get bugs. I nerdy about bugs. Cliff can even though bring, a, bring a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Even, even though Dak has already said it doesn't even matter, yeah. we're still going to talk about still it. Still going to get into it. Yeah. I think we need to introduce... Uh, Stoneflies to Texas. There you they're, go. they're here. We have them. You just oh. don't see them enough. They okay, that's a teaser yep. for our episode with Dacus. I, I was always we told we didn't. All right, here we go. Talk to you guys next week. Ha 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 